Welcome to the Tax Alpha Solutions Podcast, hosted by Matt Chancy. Matt is a tax consultant, author, and certified financial planner with almost two decades helping his clients grow their net worth. On the show, Matt brings together an array of specialists to share with you their experience and success along with strategies of the 1%. And now, here's your host, Matt Chancy. Well, hello again, everybody. This is Matt Chancy with the Tax Alpha Podcast. Uh, today on the show, we've got L. Burke Files. And L. Burke, there's some very specific reasons you want to look it up that way, is not a tax professional, but has spent 30 years in the due diligence tied to M&A transactions, both as a buyer of a business and conducting the pre-sale due diligence for sellers. You can find him online, his website, www. Feeinc.com. L. Burke, nice to have you today. Thank you, Matt. Absolutely. So, you know, I don't think, I know from my background experience, I know that private third party due diligence exists, but I don't think the average person knows that that exists. Talk about, you know, just kind of give them a high level. What do you do? Um, I come in where the questions stop is probably the funniest thing to say. Um, anytime that a due diligence research project is being conducted, you need a team. Do you need accountants? Heck yes. Do you need attorneys? Absolutely. But the attorneys deal with the law, the accountants with the numbers. There's so much more that goes beyond that. Um, just in a simple pre-sale uh, pre-investing due diligence, I was looking at a company that was making widgets. Well, I won't give the name of the product. And they were going to expand the very successful widget from 30000 a year to 300000 a year. They said that they had pre-sold their entire run of 30000 and they had pre-sold indications of intent for three hundred. And as we got into the woods, we discovered something fascinating, that one of the particular uh, technology items used in the widget, the manufacturer was going to cease making. So not only... Could they not sell 300,000? They wouldn't be able to sell 30,000. So we were able to, and I hate the expression pivot, but we were able to pivot at the last moment to, to get a replacement part that actually reduced the cost of the, the widget in the long run. But can you imagine putting your money in and then there's a single source risk of a supplier no longer making the good? Did they not even know that at that point? The seller not even know that their widget manufacturer for the piece was going to stop doing it? No, they didn't. Um, they didn't at all. The, the manufacturer is a very large international company, but they didn't understand that there was new technology that was making that item obsolete. Hmm. So technology changes were co coming about the world, but they had not let, yet looked at it. It was really a, a fascinating project where the investor due diligence was done to make sure that everything was okay and the people were great, the numbers were perfect, they were absolutely 24 karat honest, but there was just something that they didn't know. Sure. Um, and as the uh, uh, gentleman who was CEO of the company we were investigating, he says, I didn't like you much coming in, but I'm thinking a little bit better of you now. <laughs> <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, when people hear due diligence, I think they always, you know, kind of assume the worst a little bit. You know, you're going to you're going to take a look at us and see if you can, you know, find some hair on this dog. Right. And you're absolutely correct. Due diligence is probably the most overused, underappreciated word in business. And second, when you say due diligence, people's eyes glaze over and say, oh, no, not one of those people. I have an attorney. I have an accountant. Why do we need him? (laughs) Yeah. Somebody needs to fact check, independently third party fact check this stuff and make sure that it holds water. You know, you're absolutely right. It's it's not only the facts that are um, enumerated by the business, but also the environment in which that business is operating. I mean, something is odd. Um, somehow I got tied to a couple of cannabis transactions and one of them was purchasing a large farm in the Czech Republic. And I said, guys, you know, I know the attorneys over there. I'm going to go walk the property. And they said, fine. You know, it's a $50 million transaction and my fees are but a rounding error in the closing costs. But what we found is a lot of their inventory, uh, cannabinoid oils were old and had begun to go rancid. They were no longer saleable. So they were on the books. No one had actually checked to see if they were going bad. That includes the owner of the oils. They didn't know. So it wasn't a a failure of the transaction. Due diligence isn't a pass or a fail by any stretch of the imagination. It's finding the associated risks so the person or the investor can choose to assume them or not. That's all. Sure. Sure. Just disclosure. Let me know and let me write a check knowing what I should Correct. know. Right? Correct. Yeah. There was a, a case out here in Arizona uh, a few years ago. The law firm had worked for this one gentleman for several years and it helped him put together several private placements. And when the litigation began with this one particular uh, company, I started digging the background of the principal. And the man had been arrested for dealing drugs. Now, he had not been convicted. Okay. He had been selling uh, all sorts of stuff. And the reason he wasn't convicted is because he rolled over on the suppliers. But I found this out by going through an asset forfeiture where they had, he had forfeited million two in assets because they came from drug dealing. So while, while technically he wasn't a convicted drug dealer, he was a drug dealer. And the question came to uh, the attorney, didn't you know that? Well, I checked for convictions. Now, the attorney wasn't held liable by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it was a really uncomfortable moment for all of those involved, realizing that the principal was a drug dealer. And the only reason he wasn't convicted was because he turned, he rolled over on the suppliers and had to be subjected to an asset forfeiture, which included his mother, his brother, and his two girlfriends. Huh. I wonder what happened when they found out about each other, the two girlfriends. <laughs> How do we say this delicately? They knew each other very well. It was a very strange uh, case. <laughs> Understood. I, I live in the square world, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, he, so a couple of things that I know is, and this is very interesting, is there, you know, a year or so, either last year or the year before, there were 4,400 private placement offerings that came out through the SEC, right? 4,400 offerings. That's a lot of... That's a lot of stuff to look at. And that's a lot of stuff to fact check. So, you know, clients ask me all the time, well, 
you know, I understand how I would fact check something in the public markets. There's analysts and people follow it and all the other stuff. How do you fact check stuff in the private markets? And I tell them all the time, well, it's, it's a function of independent third party due diligence. And people don't know what that means. I've seen deals pulled. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this based on that story. Um, guy lies on his application and says, I've never had a bankruptcy. And you find out that 25 years ago, which is immaterial to the person that he is today and probably the offering that's on the table, completely immaterial, but yet had an omission that they had had a bankruptcy 25 years ago. I'm sure you've uncovered stuff similar to that. Um, That's very, very common, uh, believe it or not. Um, On a company that, sorry, the investment banker was taking public, we found out two interesting things. One, one of the directors had seven tax liens. They were all under $200 and he didn't know about it. But that was because he had run some retail, his wife had run some retail stores at, at hotels and apparently had failed to make some payments. The other, the nickname of um, the president of the company, we'll just call him uh, Brown Bob. Well, there was an arrest warrant out for a brown bob that was going around bars in Southern California beating people up. And I thought it was pretty funny because this fellow couldn't beat anyone up. (laughs) I said, hey, look. And he looked at it and he said, this explains why the Marine police were knocking on my door every so often. We have the same nickname. And I said, well, you know, it was was pretty. We had a good laugh. Sure. We We also discovered that. There were in part of the due diligence that there were several competitors out there um, trying to develop a similar product. They were nowhere near as close to a marketable item. So we found that this company was in a very good position for the underwriting. Second, we, the underwriter increased the size of the underwriting specifically to buy out the other private competitors or hire away their gold collar workers. So not only was it a checking of the facts, when you check the market, you found additional opportunities to prevent, in a friendly way, competition from encroaching. Hmm. Interesting. Turning, turning what could be an obstacle into an opportunity. I try. <laughs> I try. <laughs> well, you know, some days it works out, right? Some yeah, days you're the windshield, sure. some days you're the bug, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So um, inter- I'm sure that the list of stories that you could tell about the different things you look for, but do you, in your, in your process, um, I'm sure that you have some kind of a checklist that you go through that, you know, that you follow the protocol. Are there different checklists for every different, different types of due diligence? Are there different levels of due diligence that people hire you for? Like for lack of a better, an oversimplification, is there a small level, a medium level and a large level of due diligence that people could hire you for? And they're like, if you pass the small with flying colors, then, Hey, maybe we don't go to medium, but if we catch any little hair of anything on a small, maybe we definitely go to a medium to make sure that we encompass a little more. How does that work? That's actually a well, very well phrased question. Thank you. Um, I hate checklists, but yet we have to use checklists. Um, So I like to think of them as thought lists. Checklists can only encompass those things that you've seen occur in the past. There's always something new out there. The amount of due diligence required is in direct proportion to the amount of damage a choice can do to the buyer, to the seller. 
So if you're a billion-dollar company and you're acquiring a million-dollar company, eh, <laughs> you know, maybe we just go for the, we just gloss over everything real quick. Sure. But if you're, if you're making a substantial investment in a company and thinking that company is going to have synergisms, it's going to have, it'll help consolidate a market, that it's, it's fast growing, it's really cool, and we want to we bring that in, you have to do more work. It's a bit like you're hiring a gardener or you're a truck driver or a doctor. Yeah, or a gardener. If the gardener screws up, the gardener screws up. I mean, you start again. Sure. If you're hiring a doctor, especially if they're working on you, you want to make sure that they really do have the credentials, that there's not a bunch of malpractice suits out there. Um, none of their journaled articles have been retracted for fraud or forgery. And somewhere in between, you have the truck driver. Now, people laugh, but believe it or not, according to laws in most states, truck drivers receive more scrutiny than doctors because doctors are professionals. And as soon as they're licensed, there's this professional credo that, well, he's a doctor. He should know. But we all know that a truck driver who's impaired or tired driving a 50,000-pound rig at 75, 75 miles an hour can kill a lot of people. Yes. So there's also a recall bias. So um, what you're looking for is the risks tied to a transaction. And I always joke, you know, if you have a problem and someone's stealing pencils, you know what you should do? What do you do? Buy more pencils, for God's sakes. <laughs> Fair, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. It's and, annoying, but just buy bigger, buy more pencils. Yeah, buy them, buy the gross. Uh, you know, if someone's stealing your Porsches, eh, maybe you got a problem. Maybe you need to lock those up. They're a little bit larger. Right. But it comes down to the gravity of the decision. Um, I'll give two examples out of uh, history. This is going way back when American Express was acquiring Smith Barney. And um, I believe that was it. They took nine months to complete the transaction. This is a lot of time. Now, as independent people that are behind Smith Barney, they have the question, well, gee, is my deal going to change? Is my compensation going to change? Do I have to move offices? And this long time in the transaction raised a lot of questions, imponderables, I call them, that weren't answered. And all imponderables that are not answered are resolved to the negative. They lost a lot of their top talent. They just moved to another firm. Uncertainly. Yeah, exactly. And then you have... Um, Facebook's due diligence of Oculus. Do you know how long that ran? No. And gave the attorneys 24 hours, which might explain the $500 million settlement because some of the intellectual property may have been stolen. Oops. Red face moment. <laughs> so, you know, quick and dirty is not the answer. Uh, long, leisurely, and grossly methodical is not the answer either. You've got to have an investigation that provides you identification of the risks in a timely fashion. You got to move quick. Well, it's Goldilocks, right? It's always, it's uh, those fables are as old as time for a reason, right? It's not, it's not too fast. It's not too slow. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's right in the middle. It's just right, right? The juice, right. I say all the time, the juice has got to be worth the squeeze, right? <laughs> I like that. 
I'm going to now borrow that. No, no problem. I didn't, I don't think it's an original to me, but you know, I'm from the South and we have orange juices down here. And I grew up on, uh, there was orange trees near my house. So we used to pick them as a kid. And as the, you know, if it was too far up there and you, you were going to fall out of the tree and break your arm and try to get to the oranges, maybe that orange survived another day. Right. Well, I just figure that's when you get someone else to get the orange for you. <laughs> or you find one that's already hit the ground and you throw it and see if you can knock the other one to fall off of the branch. Yeah. You're bringing back memories. I have orange trees in the backyard here in Arizona. <laughs> exactly. So makes sense. Makes sense. I like that recall bias. I've never heard anybody say that before. Like, you know, um, walk me through a little bit where that comes from, just that, that terminology. The first time I encountered the term on biases, heuristics and biases in decision-making was a book by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky called Decision-Making and Uncertainty. You can't find it anymore. It's it's a beautiful book, a little bit too scholarly for me, but I I muddled through it. And I I was diving, trying to figure out why really intelligent people make really stupid choices in investing, something that I can see as a Ponzi scheme from here to Siberia, they're going, oh, this is wonderful. And our biases and heuristics drive our choice making Mm -hmm. every time. Why why is there a beautiful model washing her hair with shampoo and then turning around? Oh, if I have that shampoo, I'll be as beautiful as she is. Uh, It's not going to work for me. You connect that, that we connect that dot in our own head. We do it. And uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. is an excellent book. I also spent a lot of time trying to figure out why these fraudsters do what they do. And people say, oh, only if they, only if they did use their energies for good instead of evil. Mm-hmm. Well, they can't. Uh, a beautiful book called Inside the Criminal Mind by Dr. Uh, Stanton Samenow. Awesome book. Best non-management management book I ever read. Shows you why. The Criminal Thought Heroes. And the last book, it was, uh, I believe it's Dr. Carol Tavers, another author, um, saying mistakes were making, but it wasn't me. It talks about, oh, terrible. I'm forgetting the word at this point in time. Uh, but it, it has to do with um, cognitive dissonance. There we go. There's the word, multi-slabic. And how you'll see this on TV where a gentleman has been exonerated by DNA evidence, but the prosecutors and the attorneys are still saying, oh, we're going to keep him in jail because we know he's guilty. Based on what? Exactly. They have to admit that there was an error in the system and they're not going to admit an error. Therefore, they're going to double down even despite new evidence. And heuristics and biases, uh, criminal personalities, and cognitive dissonance drive so much of the choice making in our lives and thus in business that really the due diligence process is there to overcome our very human choice making processes to make sure that we're making decisions on facts. Sure. Um, I've been on the investigative side. I've been blessed to uh, to have some reporters trust me by digging for them and. Um, you're familiar with the one MDB scandal, Malaysian MDB. Development Malaysian Development Bank? No, go ahead, please. Approximately $6.5 billion was raised by Goldman Sachs for the uh, Malaysian Development Bank, one MDB. And the idea was for the uh, government to use this development bank to help grow companies, seed the companies, and then recover their their money after they've sold the companies off. 
it turned out to be a piggy feeding trough for corrupt officials. Mm -hmm. The money just disappeared. Um, And the question was, gee, where was the due diligence? And I started digging into uh, Timothy Lesner, the broker for uh, um, Goldman Sachs, who put together the transaction. By all accounts, a brilliant, brilliant man. He said he had worked for um, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase and their bond division in Southeast Asia, as well as Lehman Brothers. I called people that I knew were in the business and they said, sure. mm-hmm. never heard of them. But absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. You've got to take another step. And then looking at all of his promotional material, he got a bachelor's in year one, a master's in year two, and a doctorate in year three. Whoa, really? That's interesting. Yeah, don't know many people that that's happened like that before. <laughs> I verified the bachelor's and I talked with the uh, university who offered the master's program. And he really, he, he did kind of get it in one year, uh, a year and a half, but it all looked like one year because he graduated his bachelor's in January and immediately uh, enrolled in his master's program. So he finished out that year and got it the next year. Sure. And the doctorate the year after that was purchased from a diploma mill. Then I pulled, I don't know why I didn't do this before, but I pulled his uh, securities licenses, both in the United States and overseas. I couldn't get the stuff from overseas, but in the United States, it showed he worked for a German high school. Then he worked for Goldman Sachs, signed under affidavit with um, uh, FINRA. How do you go from a German high school to Goldman Sachs? Forget all the other stuff they didn't tell the truth about. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, the reporter asked and she was right. Which one of these is true? I said, I don't know. Um, But they are incongruent with each other and they both could be incorrect. But this is some of the stuff, you know, again, you get into that professional C-suite. Right. Oh, well, yeah, it's fine. It's good. (laughs) That's crazy. You know, it's so funny. I tell people all the time. So I've done I've caught myself personally, and this is not necessarily my primary role, but if I'm going to put somebody's money in something, I always want to put my money in it too, right? Because I believe in eating your own cooking per se. But I've done the due diligence on stuff and it's never the first things you see. And I think what you said will back me up on this. It's never these big glaring, like red flashing signals. It's little tiny things, but then you see like three or four of them. You're like one of them, no big deal. But I see three or four of them now, maybe five or six. And it starts to make me doubt a seventh and an eighth thing potentially. And you're like, a lot of this stuff just doesn't add up per se. Like I've had a company one time tell me that we had a corporate headquarters out of Boca Raton, Florida. So I just put a little tickler in my phone. Next time I happen to be in Boca Raton, go knock on the door of the corporate headquarters. Just see what happens, right? Well, turns out it was just like one of those places where you get mail. It was listed on their website as a corporate headquarters. I was like, well, that doesn't hold water, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit like when I had an office in Beijing. <laughs> our, our idea was, quite frankly, to sell the due diligence to American businesses coming over to China. It turned out that the Chinese were a better client trying to figure out what scoundrels were coming over. But one company said, hey, you know, I want to do a due diligence on this company. How much is it going to cost? I said, well, I said, we can do the basic stuff for about 2000 And if they pass the basic stuff, because you're talking the small due diligence, it'll be a $25,000 fee. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. You know, we'll just come over there ourselves. 
Well, they did. Four of them came over. They went to the address where they're sending the FedEx material. And the address was actually a number in between two buildings. It wasn't even a real address. Hmm? So they could have learned that for 2,500 bucks. (laughs) I would have, you know, the first thing I do is I check the address, go over there and look, and I'd probably refund half of it. Right. Um, Well, how how does FedEx do that? I said, a little tip gets a long way. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's just. There's one gentleman I ran into. He uh, was an attorney. Actually, he still is an attorney. He claimed to have a Mexican law degree, was a chartered financial analyst, and uh, had an Ivy League MBA. So, okay, fine. I checked. He is a, um, a member of the bar. Um, I checked the Mexican law degree. My Spanish was just good enough. And the woman I spoke to uh, in Mexico City was fantastic. If I ever go down there again, I'm going to hug her. <laughs> she said oh i remember him this was just familiarization with the mexican law this is no mexican law degree and it was five days six hours a day he attended one day i wondered why he even came thank you chartered financial analyst requires two exams be taken i believe in within two years yeah it's not an easy test no he had taken the first exam uh twice had passed the second time but by the time I called, uh, it was a week or two before the time was going to expire before he could take the second exam. He was not a chartered financial analyst. And he did not have an MBA from the Ivy League school described. Hmm. And he is still in uh, some cash funds managing billions of dollars. Not my client's money, but someone else's. But the, the, the process of the due diligence sometimes, and I'm, I'm going to go right to the heart of what you've probably seen. Sure. The numbers don't make sense. The numbers, just a back of the envelope calculation, the numbers don't make sense. Right. There was a a fund manager here in Arizona. She called me up and said, Burke, these bonds look really good. Tell me more about them. You know, I've got to kind of make a choice within the next week. Okay. And the bonds were $10 billion collateralized by diesel fuel or fuel oil being produced in the Soviet sub-republic of Bashkortostan. (laughs) Okay. We have got, I'm not kidding you, we've got two major audits, both of the fund and uh, of the offering, the fund manager's previous funds and of the offering. We also have safekeeping receipts of the um, uh, material from um, NatWest, in London, this looks pretty legit. And in investing, you know, everyone says I'm looking for a turn of, on my money. Well, wrong. You're first looking for a turn of your money, of your money, then a return. That's right. And uh, I made a quick calculation. It would have taken at that time, there's two years to maturity, uh, about 11% with the discount. It would have taken some 4,200 days of oil production in Bashkortostan um, to ever fully collateralize the bonds. It's it's over 10 years. Right. There was a two-year maturity on these bonds. And that's also making sure that every single refinery in Bashkortostan, and there are some very big refineries there, very big. But out of every barrel of oil, it's 40 gallons, only 10 can be made into fuel oil or diesel. And (laughs) that means you would own the production of all three refineries. What's the likelihood that all three refineries have committed their production to these bonds and they're not receiving the money? 
very unrealistic. Right. And she goes, okay. It's like, uh, okay. You know, I thought these were pretty good, but you're bothering me, Burke. She goes, can you go the next level? I said, you don't need a next level. She says, find out what the gig is. So called some of my investigator friends. Lo and behold, someone had gone to one of the refineries and had paid the office staff a nice sum of money, equivalent of about $1,000, to stay out of the office for a half a day. (laughs) So when the auditors and everyone else came to visit, they're visiting the offices in the refinery. With nobody that actually worked there being there at that particular time, just to check it all out. These are actors. <laughs> it's right. basically, it, an info, it basically an infomercial. <laughs> it's financial theater. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> so, you know, this stuff, this stuff does happen. And sometimes it was uh, a company just a few years ago. Um, the woman entrepreneur is brilliant. She's a pain in the backside. And she told me, she says, I'm going to sell this company, but I need to figure out what I did wrong. (laughs) I've known her for years. She's brilliant. Okay. So uh, I come in and realize that she's raised two rounds of money, too close together through crowd financing. And she's violated the securities laws. Mm. Got it. So what would happen is a guy would come in and say, you know, Matt, you got a nice company, but geez, it's not worth 10 million. I'll give you two. Mm Mm-hmm. And you're stuck. Um, her and the attorney worked very hard and put together, and an auditor put together a rescission rights agreement to go back to all the shareholders and let them know that, that they can have their money back or they can stay in. And um, 99% of them stayed in. Um, a couple wanted their money back. So, okay, put that money to the side and the shares to the side, because as soon as the news comes out, that you're being acquired and these people are going to make tenfold their money, they're going to want their shares. <laughs> Right. So she did. And it went through and it did. It did very well. But there were some other things that were um, some things that she did wrong. All of them fixable and fixable before, you know, a big public company comes in and makes an offer. Sure. Well, there's a difference that something that somebody does in good faith and makes a mistake as opposed to somebody that's trying to obfuscate the truth and hide something. Knowing this woman, she was just impatient and impertinent. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot of people in industries, in all industries that need it to happen, you know, like yesterday, like our hair has got to be on fire over the circumstances. You know, yeah, maybe not. Like, yeah. And, you know, also, you know, as you go through this process, um, and it's always a due diligence team, while the attorney is, quote, always the lead of the team for all the proper reasons, um, attorney-client privilege, I go in and I work with experts to coordinate them. Um, you're buying a large manufacturing facility. You need to know if it works. You need, for example, let's say a potato chip factory. You need food equipment engineers. You need building engineers, HVAC. You need to check their delivery, uh, the, the, the supply of bags, the supply of potatoes, your rail siding, all of that. And it takes time. Yes. But it's all packaged up. And uh, I know typically when I work with an attorney on a pre-sale uh, or an acquisition due diligence, you know, he or she says, okay, you're always going to be in my right hand. <laughs> Your throat is going to be in right hand and you're going to do this. So we get it right. Yes. And is it an investment? Absolutely. Um, is it always quote unquote worthwhile? Do we find something awful? Rarely. 
do we find something awful? The awful makes the good stories to illustrate the process. Many times we find that, you know, there have been some foundational errors, as you said, good faith stuff, that if cleaned up will help them do a little bit better. But uh, never have I been told that, you know, the time in the due diligence was wasted money. Uh, Sometimes they're very thankful that they don't have that imponderable hanging over them uh, during the transaction or afterwards. Well, it's sleep well at night insurance is what it is Mm -hmm. in a worst case scenario. And there's a lot to be said for that, right? And I agree with you 100%. You said, you know, if I have to pick between right and fast, I pick right. You know, get it done right. Get the right answers. I can wait a day. I can wait a week. I can wait whatever. You know, if I'm ever pressured into it has to happen now, I'm like, there's a lot of other good opportunities out there. I'll pass. If you think it's got to happen right now, I'll just pass. I'm okay. Yeah. And that's that's a typical pressure for, for a con man is to put time pressure on you. Yeah. To tell you about all the secret sauces that he has to help make you money that... Uh, even the Federal Reserve chairman, she would be, she even is in on this, but you can't tell anyone that. Right, <laughs> that right. yeah. But um, no, it's, it's, you got to get your information in a timely fashion. And there are ways to map out using good old fashioned uh, PERT and CPM on what do you have to start now that takes forever, what you can do now and start getting answers. And as you go through the process, each new nugget uh, verified or not verified leads to more questions. And you also have to be honest with the client as you're going through the process. Are there any fatal flaws such as, uh, I, I remember we're going through a due diligence on a uh, company uh, that manufactured weapons and they had a bunch of patents. So I found that they, all of their patents, they had failed to pay the maintenance fee and were all public domain. My SC attorney, is that a fatal flaw? And he goes, yep, you can stop. <laughs> That's a big deal. So into a large, many thousand, you know, $15,000, $20,000 contract, I refunded uh, all but 500. It was real quick. <laughs> wow. That's unfortunate. You do your, your, your job well and you're penalized for it. Not penalized. You know, that it's authenticity. Sure. All right. If you're authentic with uh, the people you work with and your clients and the public, all goes well. Sometimes you'd rather keep that large fee. Other times, you know that returning the 19.5 out of that is uh, the best marketing tool you'll ever have because you didn't screw someone when you knew it was bad. Yeah. I learned a long time ago that even you know a bad actor can mess up a, a good investment, but a good actor will do their damnedest to save a bad investment and all the investors from harm. You're betting on the jockey, not the horse in most of these deals. Absolutely. And if they're good people and you believe that they're well-intentioned and they're trying to do the right thing in the right way, then more times than not, you're going to get the right outcome. One of my clients is a fund manager who specializes in shorting public equities. And uh, I said, you know, your instinct is uncanny. I know I'm a financial investigator. I don't find diamonds. I find the turds, but you absolutely know where they are. He says, yeah. He said, he's been working on a database for over 30 years of directors of public companies. And he said, some directors are strongly correlated with failure. Either they're coming in to grow the business and they crash it, 
where they seek this person to help them pivot and it fails. He said, whatever it is, some of them are just strongly correlated with failure. So when I see a name pop up, Bob Smith is going to XYZ company. He said, I sit and I wait for this market to pop. Then I short it. Oh my goodness. I said, can I look at your database? He goes, nope. Nope. That's, <laughs> that's my 30 years of tracking and proprietary information that makes me unique, right? Correct. So, oh, but that man. was his due diligence. That was his due diligence. That's so good. It's so simple, but yet so elegant at the same time. You know, that's so great. Oh man, that's fun. I try to explain to people all the time, like what due diligence is and, and asking the questions that I think a lot of it's most people don't even know what questions they would ask, much less how to ask them or who to ask them or who to fact check them based on the answers, right? Well, yeah, my old friend um, in New York and a partner, he since passed, but he said, after working some cases together, he said, I know what due diligence is. It's about the hound and the hare. I said, what do you mean the hound and the hare? He said, it's about the hound and the hare. Which one's the hound? Which one's the hare? And sometimes it's a surprise to both. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Good point, Richard. Good point. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So your origin story, what led you to this? I was in investment banking for 10 years, commodities and investment banking. And I worked with uh, two really cool guys, Gary Lace and Paul Schultz. And as we were underwriting companies, we asked the question, what level of due diligence do we need to do to ensure the safety of the money of our investors? And we would have long discussions. We went through tons of business plans and we had both objective and subjective uh, approaches, uh, in particular, the subjective of a person filling out a questionnaire and actually following the instructions. Our questionnaires were 40 pages long and everyone got them and were mad as heck at us. The ones we knew was like a two day window. They'd call back, hey, this is really easy. I'm sending it in. And the other ones that would squeal for weeks and weeks, we just knew that they don't have the wherewithal, as you're talking about the people, they just don't have the mental acuity or wherewithal to sit down and do something that detailed. And sometimes running a business is that detailed. Um, I would have been with those men and women I worked with over there for even today, but uh, the owner had a cocaine habit and sniffed our uh, paychecks and the rent and a few other things. <laughs> So uh, after I'd won two back then NASD arbitrations, literally as I'm leaving the office, one of the attorneys who I had bested in two arbitrations called me up. He says, Burke, you seem to be pretty good at due diligence. What about financial investigations? It was Sheldon Mitchell here in Arizona. And I said, Sheldon, I don't know, but I have a lot of free time on my hand. I'll come over. <laughs> and that started, uh, that had to be 1991 or 92, 91, I think. And I got my license in 92, 93 as, a, as an investigator, and I've been doing it ever since. I had the ability, uh, since being on the structure side and the due diligence side, to not only do the due diligence, but also, if you fail to do the due diligence, the asset recovery on the other side. I've worked cases in 136 countries, and I just came back from my 109th country. So it really is an international practice. It's just a couple of us. Teams are assembled and disassembled uh, per project, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm thankful for the puzzles I'm given and working with buyers and sellers and professionals to, uh, to make the transactions authentic, transparent. Sure, sure. 
Very interesting. So I'm sure it's like, it sounds like, and an, your mind works a lot like mine. I can tell you because you, we read some of the same books by some of the same authors. You're the only other person I've ever had on here that said heuristics. Um, I explain to somebody at least once a week what that is. Right? So. It's, it, yeah, it was, it was a frustration really uh, of trying to figure out why really smart people were making really dumb investments. And when you see 30, 40, 50 million dollars disappear in a Ponzi scheme, and you're finding that the investors are your problem, the investors are actually taking the information from the investigation and leaking it to the Ponzi kings. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder what's going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what started that, that path down, a detailed path down to due diligence. I teach it, I certify it. Um, uh, certified due diligence professionals, but it's 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 very much about understanding how choices are made by the human. Sure, we all have biases. We all have these behavioral. I mean, look, it's the world is a complicated place, and there's a lot of stuff going on. So, any way we can find to shortcut the process by things that we think or we believe are true, right? To not have to burn real brain power on it, right? So we try to do. We're just humans. Yeah. And it's, you know, our job is to burn the brain power on the behalf of the clients. You know, I've sat down with some multinational tax experts and professionals. And even after an hour of them discussing things and having fun, my brain is gone. I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, my joke is, t- you know, taxes. That's a, a state, you know, a little east of here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So talk to me about the teaching and the certification. So how many people have you trained? What's your certification process look like? Is is this a separate company that you own where you create little mini U's that are running around out there saving the world from one bad investor dollar at a time? Like, tell me about this. Um, it's the International Due Diligence Organization. And it came up after I published my book, Due Diligence for the Financial Professional. That was in 2010. Yes, I know. I got to get another edition out. Um, <laughs> that's, all, that's your publicist getting on. <laughs> yeah, the publicist sits on the shoulder and smacks me every once in a while. Um, I wanted to share it. And, and I had taught the class a couple of times at Texas A&M Law School. Got a lot of feedback from a great man over there, uh, Andy Morris, the old dean there. And started taking it on the road. I have taught how to be a due diligence professional on five continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, Latin America. And I also include it, uh, I teach at Hayek Global College. I include it in my, in part of their MBA program. I teach a class called Business Street Smarts. And I don't take them through the exact certification process, but I bring them down to using what's been taught on communication, contract management, fraud, theft, et cetera, to then begin looking at different business scenarios. So I am somewhere between it's around 300 people. Uh, typically the class, if I can do it the way I want to, uh, is in person. It's two and a half days because that the half day, you know, the half third day is where they all present their scenarios to each other and we judge them. I get to sit in the classroom. They get to be up in front. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's about 16 hours uh, online, but I like to break it up over a period of time. Um, they get a due diligence certified, a DDC credential. Um, the next credential is due diligence professional. It costs nothing. 
All they have to do is write a white paper, submit it to the IDDO so we can share it with the members on a topic of due diligence that interested them. It's sharing the knowledge with the other professionals. Love it. Feels like, do you feel like there's more people that are interested in that type of stuff and going into that type of stuff today? And I ask it from this perspective a little bit, like, you know, those CSI cop shows didn't exist, you know, a decade ago. And now all the rage is not the murder and the, but the, the looking through it and solving it and putting all the pieces together. Everybody wants to do that. Right. And I think shows like, American greed, right? Great financial crime show or whatever, right? You've, you've been involved in how many of those have you hadn't been involved in or not been involved in? You don't have to. Say. I've known many of the presenters on American <laughs> greed. One of my favorite and a man that I absolutely enjoy is David Marchant of offshore alert. He's probably broken more frauds than anyone I know. Nice. Um, due diligence is being misused. One service provider said that put online instant international due diligence. No, (laughs) no. Uh, Another one has, we do nationwide background checks on people, criminal background checks. No, you don't. Um, Not all the courts sell their data. Last week I had, was looking into someone who had stolen money from a, a senior care facility and she has a failure to appear warrant for, um, doing something bad uh, back in Pennsylvania. And why did that show up on, the, on my database or other databases? It's because it's a very small township and their records are just on a couple of laptops or, or desk computers. They're not sure. connected to the internet for that. So there is no such thing as a, a national background check. You have to do it bit at a time. And we're also suffering from... Um, the big accounting firms and the big law firms. Oh, we'll take care of your due diligence. We know how to do due diligence. You know, I, I got a problem with the big auditing firms. They're not even getting their audits right, their core competency. And then they're going out and offering due diligence services or ESG rating services. You know, I get it. They're trying to increase the billable hours, but at what cost? They're, they're providing poor product. Ask any CPA that works for any CPA firm and they'll tell you they never want to be in audit or it was the worst part of their career they've ever done. Nobody ever wants to be in audit. Nobody enjoys it. Nobody likes it. So, you know, we, we were called in on a, on a due diligence project um, for a company in the Middle East that produced oil. They had eight years of audited financial statements. Well, my dear friend, Mohammed Masood went in. He's a charter certified uh, internal auditor. And he loves audits, bless his heart, <laughs> loves them. He's in with the books and I'm out with a translator and an old de Havilland otter. And we're visiting some of the oil wells and the equipment. And I'm learning tons of information. Thank God it was, we were recording it. The translator translated all of it later. But they said, yeah, these people aren't so good. Yeah, sometimes the oil wells are running. We don't get it. And we figured out over the eight years of audited financial statements, one million 10 barrels of oil had been pumped, but never recorded. It's a million, 10 barrels, a, a million and 10 barrels of oil stolen. And they just you know, don't know where it is. <laughs> yeah. And the government's going, well, how much is that? And, you know, Muhammad being himself, bless his heart, goes, well, I don't know. Was it at $40 a barrel or $100 a barrel? I don't know. <laughs> we only know it was taken within these eight years. Right. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Um, it's really the effort of getting up from behind your desk and going out and talking to people, touching things, asking questions, being very honest and convivial. 
I found in, in traveling that we are infinitely more similar than we are different and uh, that we're all looking to get, uh, you know, get an honest transaction done and uh, move forward. So the vast majority of forces are with the honest and the authentic. The minority are the ones that keep us in the forensic work going. <laughs> and it makes for good TV. It does. It does. My wife doesn't allow me to watch those programs anymore. <laughs> they cause restless night sleep. Huh? <laughs> no, I'm yelling at the television. That's not what, how, no, that's not how you launder money. Oh, they're going to get caught. This is stupid. And she just looks at, would you just shut up? So unrealistic. You're like, whoa, entertainment value. Calm down over there. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, uh, I had the opportunity uh, at, a, at an event to meet a major game show host. It was 20 years ago. It was Merv Griffin. I would, he was sitting next to me. Uh, I don't know how he got, I got at his table, but delightful gentleman. I just asked him a fascinating question. I said, you know, you're the king of game shows. What makes a good game show? He goes, when the people at home are yelling at the television, dang, <laughs> dang, I got it. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they can pick that up in their early screen tests. I don't know, but apparently the crime shows I'm not allowed to watch anymore because I'm yelling at the television. <laughs> Good stuff. Understood. Well, hey, we've, we've about come to the end of our time. This has been awesome. Your stories are great. Helping people really understand what due diligence is about has been I love this kind of stuff. This has literally been one of the most fun, like, because I nerd out on this kind of stuff. I like. I, I, I got it. Now, you know, it, it doesn't always translate, um, as I share with other people, but the best due diligence person should uh, mirror Curious George, the little monkey, going out and doing all sorts of things he shouldn't do and asking all sorts of questions that no one wants to have answered. Mm -hmm. you know, go out and be Curious George, and, and uh, there's no... You can ask anything. They may not want to give you an answer, but you can still ask it. I find in my experience, the due diligence officers that I've stumbled across fit into, and I'm going to, this is an overgeneralization fit into. A couple, I like those. Yeah. Fit into a couple of different boxes. Those that take what they do very serious and are really good at it. Naturally inquisitive. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's another due diligence person out there that's working on behalf of somebody else and needs to check boxes on a form to put it in a file. So if anybody ever goes back and looks at it, they can say, well, we asked that question, right? We tried. Yeah. I had one of those events. I was going with the law team up to uh, Kansas and uh, we're sitting there, we're talking in the plane about the approach and how to go through it. And the attorney just looks over at me, he says, Burke. We're just there to get grab paper and fill a filing cabinet. I said, I don't get it. Don't you want the due diligence? He said, no, this is called done diligence. The transaction is going through no matter what we find. So just collect what you need to do and we get out. Yeah. yeah. I, I bowed out of the rest of that assignment. Yeah. Understood. I, and I think there's a lot of people that view it that way. So I, I understand that. I yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm going to have to run. I've just looked Appreciate up the time and this yeah. has been a delight. This was so much fun. Thanks so much. Well, let me, you know, everybody, hey, thanks for joining the podcast today. L. Burke's Files um, website is feeinc.com. And, you know, thanks for listening to the podcast. This is Matt Chancy, Tax Alpha Solutions, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Matt. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Tax Alpha Solutions brought to you by Matt Chancy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.